Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for how we think about our interior lives. And from time to time, we have veered from workplace mental health to personal mental health to just the everyday tools that can help us all live better. But as I was in a speaking engagement, I met an incredible man that I want to introduce to you today. Nathan Horn Mitchum is the Chief Information Security Officer for Manufacturers Bank, and he has over 20 years of experience as an information security and technology expert. Now, I was talking with Nathan about everything from how we take care of our teams in the workplace to personal security, the risk of AI, and what we can all do to better our own security in the future. Nathan's background in security is where we're going to begin today. He has previously provided security advisory services for Goldman Sachs, for Deutsche Bank, and now we have him joining us today. Hello, Nathan. So good to see you. Hi, how are you? You know, we had this conversation beginning around workplace mental health and the stressors. I think that as a cybersecurity officer, your role and as a person who manages CISOs and CIOs, it's probably the most hypervigilant role I have ever heard of. Would you agree? Yeah. You know, there's uh there's a, we we joke, we'd always we'd love a dull day in the space, and there's there's never a dull day. You know, you love the work, you enjoy the work, the fun offsets some of the stress. How many teams have you advised in this realm? And what is kind of your focus about the biggest security risk to the people you currently manage? Yeah, so I think it's probably you've managed five or six teams over the course of my career, different size organizations from a cybersecurity perspective. You know, I think the biggest concern from a cybersecurity perspective, honestly, is is getting people to understand it's not really a technology risk, it's a people risk. Mm. At the end of the day, the bad guys are people. The people that are harmed are people. The impact Im- impacts people's lives. So I think if we always try and solve these problems with just thinking about it from a technical perspective, we miss the biggest piece of that, which is these these are real people, and, and every decision from a security decision to a bad guy's action alters and impacts somebody's lives in a very meaningful way. Especially when you're dealing at a bank. I mean, I can think of only two organizations who have a higher risk, banks and probably medical institutions that contain your medical data. Would you agree that those are probably the highest risk areas of cybersecurity? Yeah, I think financial services is definitely up there. I do want to make note that there are some industries where if you make a mistake, someone dies. And and, and thankfully, that's that's not the case for us here. But yeah, there's a significant impact when you interfere with both a person or a company's financials and their ability to just function after an attack or after they have been locked out of the ability to do financial transactions. Gartner recently did a study that showed that more than half of CISOs and CIOs say they will leave their positions within two years because of the level of stress that they're under. How does that ring with you? You know, I've seen it with a lot of my peers, and you know, knock on wood, I haven't had that experience in my career. I don't think I've ever been anywhere shorter than four years. But, you know, that's not to say that the job isn't stressful, not to say that my colleagues have made poor decisions. I think there's a personal aspect to it, and there's how you're performing in your organization, whether you think that stress is managing down or managing up or, or staying flat. And so, you know, from my perspective, I appreciate the stressfulness of the job, especially for my staff and the folks on my team. And so you know, I spend a lot of energy, a lot of time trying to understand where they're at mentally, how they're feeling, 
let them know what's coming just even down the road. A lot of the stress that comes in this role is you don't always know what's happening next. So the business may decide they want to launch a new product and that's great. And the customers are going to love it. And it's good for the bottom line. There's obviously implications from a security perspective that we have to, to build the appropriate security behind it. And so sometimes just that kind of blindsided, like, Hey, we're going to launch this in six months and can, you know, make people unnerved. And so if you give them that information, as soon as you get it, and they know that you're communicating that, 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 can alleviate that can alleviate a number of the internal stresses and then you have to manage the external stresses as much as you can as you know i can't obviously improve someone's personal life but i can be cognizant of what's going on in it and 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 be supportive and accommodating if they need additional things that you wouldn't normally think of let's just generalize that for people who aren't in quite as stressful positions as cso's and cios you're talking about transparency And so many times managers feel like keeping information from their employees will actually allow them to have less stress when in fact, a lot of studies show that it just, you know, manifests as more stress in the workplace because people are attempting to find out what is going on. When you're doing that, how do you measure the company's secrets, um, timeline, all of the other implications of it while you're sharing the information. Go into a little deeper detail. Part of our responsibility is keeping secrets. So there's 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 obviously a balance and, and I can't share information I'm not authorized to share. But a lot of times there's no internal limitations on letting us know if we're doing something. You have to be comfortable sharing incomplete information, you know, which is, hey, we're doing a thing. It's going to happen in the next six months. We haven't necessarily figured it all out yet. And there's people involved in that conversation. And I like to start those conversations because oftentimes someone on my team will think of something like, hey, you know, if we go to the left, we have this sort of impact. And if we go to the right, we have that sort of impact. And so knowing that and, and taking that information back to the decision makers, back to the business line and saying, hey, let's make sure that all the right people that need to be involved in the decision are there results in a better product for customers, a better delivery path for the business, and then improve security for the organization. I also really like the fact, Nathan, that when you engage people in information about what's coming, they can impact the other part of the dynamic, which is their personal lives, so that it gives them time to get on extra caregivers, a little extra support at home, so that it gives them that ramp up, if you will, to what the additional stressors are. So when you are talking about checking in with people's personal mental health, their personal goings on at home, how do you manage those conversations? So, you know, for me, I like to be a little bit of an open book. And and if you just pop into someone's life and say, hey, tell me what's going on at home, they're not going to share. I share. I share the good stuff and some of the not so good stuff with folks. I'm like, hey, you know, look, I had a rough weekend, stressful, wasn't wasn't the best. I apologize in advance if I seem a little irritable today. And so I think people seeing you open up and being transparent about the fact that Nah, your life is not a fairy tale 24-7, 365. Makes them feel comfortable. We have some sort of like uh, mantras, unofficial slogans in our team. It's my personal belief, and and and, and we've shared that down our organizational levels. You got to take care of what's going on at home before you come to the office. It's very easy to make a mistake or to make the wrong decision in, in something like cyber. And so if you're distracted... It increases the likelihood of doing it. And so, you know, I just tell folks like, hey, if, if you don't think you've got a hundred percent today, don't worry about it. Like go take care of what's taking your focus away 
the work will still be here when you get back. You know, I always promise you, we're not going to finish all the work when you're off for a day or two. So don't worry, it'll be here when you get back. And um, then when they're when they come back and 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 they've settled whatever the doctor's appointment they had to take a family member to, the car that broke down, whatever whatever the issue is, there's uh there's a sense of relief that stress has been lifted off of them, and then that that additional ability to focus. And I think folks are are happy to to work extra hard to maybe make up for that time. So in the end, I've never seen a productivity decrease. I've seen a productivity increase. When you give people that kind of flexibility and I've seen, you know, a loyalty aspect and, and the, the statistic you brought up earlier about CISOs leaving their role. It's not just CISOs that leave, it's security people in general, often yeah. have a high turnover rate. And so, you know, I've always been proud that the organizations I've been a part of have a much lower attrition rate than peer organizations. And, you know, I attribute that to us building a culture that we all kind of buy into where we respect life outside of the office and honor those boundaries and then really encourage people to be happy, be satisfied with their personal lives. And then they bring that attitude back to work. You're talking about the long-term results of investing in whole person mental health at work. I mean, you're like a case study in some ways that we can (laughs) see. So do your team members report higher degrees of happiness, satisfaction, You've seen the productivity, but are they also saying, I like it more here? Yeah. You know, we've had those conversations and and I encourage, you know, my managers go talk to your staff, you know, like it's not just me. This is a culture can't be built or, or designed by one person. A culture is an inclusive thing. So we got to have everybody buy into it. And it's actually part of the conversation that we have with folks when we're interviewing them. You know, mm-hmm. like this is how we operate here. Does that resonate with you? And if it doesn't, it's totally fine. Culture is a very personal thing and you do a disservice to someone if you don't let them know what that culture is before they come in, because if it doesn't align with them, then they're not going to be a great fit. And if it does align with them, then to me, having that cultural fit can sometimes tip the scale in favor of someone. If you've got two very talented technical candidates and either one of them could do the job, I may sometimes choose the one who maybe have a little bit less experience or a little bit you know, less polish if that cultural alignment is tighter. Hmm. One of the concerns that I always hear from CISOs and CIOs wherever I go is that the communication with the C-suite about the necessity of investing to prevent attacks is always clunky. It's always difficult. Did this cultural shift for you change that communication at all? Were you able to have those conversations more openly and honestly with the C-suite? Yeah, I think... I think the clunkiness is sort of a, it, it can be a two-way problem. And, and I'll say that a lot of CISOs have come through sort of a technical background track. Mm-hmm. And so they maybe are most comfortable in a room full of engineers. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that same career track. I actually was a business major. Mm-hmm. I'm self-taught technologist. I've always loved it. But yeah, if you put me in a room with 10 other CISOs, I may be the least technical person there. But my teams, I don't think, are underperforming compared to those other ones. I'm very comfortable sitting down with with fellow members of the C-suite and having a conversation in plain English. I'm not trying to use a lot of that technical jargon. In fact, I I shy away from it in, in all of my conversations, even with my security leaders, because I'm like, no one cares outside of us about that type of technical language. Well, we have to communicate what's important to to the business, to our customers, to our stakeholders. And so I think 
it, it kind of goes into some of my thoughts around culture, which is you got to meet someone halfway there, you know? And yeah. so C-suite folks maybe don't have a complete understanding of the risk from a cybersecurity perspective. And they're not necessarily supposed to. That's why they have a security organization to understand that risk and dissect it and take it back to them. But if we can't communicate that risk effectively to them, then we have failed. Because you have these kind of regular meetings with your team around their work, home, life balance, things like that, have you actually integrated into your workload the ability for you to say, we'd like um, the C-suite to know what we're doing and what we're up against? Do you have a weekly check-in with people that are at the highest level of your organization? I have uh, one-on-ones with all of the major C-suite leaders. The cadence depends. You know, some folks, it's weekly, some folks, it's monthly, some folks, it's, it's quarterly, just depending on how often our, inter- our interactions are with them. And I also try and make sure, just like I have a relationship with my colleagues and my staff at a personal level, it's the same with the C-suite. And I think when you humanize yourself and the folks you work with, it builds for those better relationships. So even if it's just after a meeting, grabbing a cocktail and talking about each other's dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Next time we have a conversation, you know, they're like, I want to do X. And I'm like, I want to do Y. And it's no longer like a me versus you. It's like, all right, well, what's the best decision for the organization? What's the best decision for your space and my space? And how do we find common ground? And and knowing that Fluffy had a surgery a few weeks ago and is now on the mend starts the conversation in a different tone and a different relationship emerges from it. You you are so right, just in terms of the data that we've done, Nathan, ju- that just shows people have so much distrust of HR, which is where most organizations land these conversations. They don't feel like they can actually trust who it is that's having the question about their personal life. All of this lands on a manager, a supervisor that is well-trusted to actually create this relationship and have this kind of team communication going on. So by instinct, you've done it in the way that the data really proves. If you think about the concerns that a lot of people have right now around technology, it's kind of moving into this conversation I wanted to have about personal security. On some ways, every citizen is feeling the angst that you do as a cybersecurity director, right? They're feeling like, I don't know if my if my digital life is secure, I don't know when I'm going to get hacked next. I don't know if my banking is secure. What advice are you giving people about the fear that we're feeling around cybersecurity? Well, I think the first thing is to just acknowledge it's a very legitimate fear and concern. And I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of people who, whether or not they actually are technically illiterate, feel technically illiterate, and then they feel stupid for feeling that way or not having that knowledge. And so first of all, it's a very complicated world and and we're adding so much technology to everything we do. I mean, now you've got your refrigerator can tell you the weather. So it's just, it's, it's an onslaught. And so it's just first okay to accept that I don't know everything that I need to know and I'm worried about what's happening. And that's totally, that's totally rational fear. I'm not expecting people to become cyber experts overnight. Instead, you know, I always try and ask people, are there just a couple things that you can do in your life and build routines around them? And if you mm-hmm. build those routines, it becomes second nature and it's it's not as difficult. And so there's some some simple things you can do. Make sure that the passwords that you use for your banking, for anything that's really important, is unique. 
So don't use the same password for Facebook mm-hmm. and Netflix and you're back. You know, it sounds simple, but, but, you know, doing something like that, anytime you can turn on MFA or multi-factor or 2FA where you get a message sent to your phone with a number or a code or, or, or a, is this actually you click? Yes. Turn it on. It's free. And that goes a long way to kind of helping you out. But the other piece is lean into these organizations. Your financial institution should provide you with some tips and tricks that are specific to their organization Mm. around how you should best protect yourself. And it's okay to ask for help. There's a lot of free resources out there. A lot of companies are not great about putting it front and center for folks. But it's definitely out there from a literature perspective, you know, reading the articles you may see in your local paper, your magazine, where you say, hey, three or four security tips. Hey, take a look, see if there's yeah. any stuff you want to incorporate into your life. And then the biggest thing really is just check, check your accounts yep. every so often, weird transactions, yep. things you're not familiar with. Unfortunately, in the era of the internet, we have to be a little bit distrusting. So yeah. if someone wants you to send some money or yep. do something on the internet that you've never done before, it doesn't quite totally make sense to you, you know, pop pop over to someone that you trust and, and just get a second opinion. A lot of these scams that we see people fall victim for, they're not the most sophisticated scam but they preyed on people who didn't have anyone to just bounce it off of. And mm-hmm. once they talked about it to someone, most people's like sensors and right around off like that, ah, something off about that. I don't know mm-hmm. what it is, but something's off. And that can be the difference between your checking account being emptied out or not, you know? Yeah. I, I'm very curious about your thoughts on whether AI is going to make it even impossible for you guys to do your job because the ability for, AI hackers to get one over on consumers is one that I think is pretty baffling. You know, anytime there's a new technology, bad guys use it, good guys use it. So <laughs> is is AI helping me? Yes. A lot of my security tools are building in AI capabilities and that's great. Bad guys are also using AI capabilities. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see how this all kind of unfolds. I, I think anyone who tells you they know how it's all going to unfold is, is probably lying to you or a little bit full of themselves. To me, AI is one of these sort of transformational technologies, sort of like the internet was. And I don't think anyone in the 80s and 90s when the internet really exploded could imagine that it would look like it does today. Unfortunately, we're probably as a society going to have to walk that path and we're going to make some mistakes. But at the end of the day, for bad guys to win, for bad guys to collect money, they need a functioning economy underpinning it. Mm. Because if they're so successful that they steal everything and the economy collapses, I mean, they, they, they themselves are part of the global economy, for better or for worse. Crime is always uh-huh. been- I've never exactly. thought about it in that way before, Nathan. That's hilarious. A, crime is part <laughs> of the global economy. Whether whether you're a cyber criminal or you're you're moving guns or drugs or or whatever illegal activity you're doing, it, it does seem to find some sort of balance. Now, maybe the balance isn't where we as a society wants it. Maybe it's tilted too far in the favor of one side or the other. But I think there's a lot of very smart people that have a vested interest in making sure that cybercrime doesn't overwhelm all of the things that are happening around the world. The biggest problem is the collateral damage, which is the individual or the small business owner who becomes a collateral damage. And I think that's as a society where we need to focus on how do we help these people? 
How do we get them back on their feet if something bad happens? How do we yeah. limit the damage? And governments, law enforcement, private organizations, and the public are still working to answer. I was joking um, with my partner that I wish we had our own cybersecurity official on staff because we're both small business owners. And I feel that those are the people who are most exposed because most large organizations have a you. But for small businesses, they don't have someone like that working to defend against the attacks. And when you get a bank account cleared out of a small business owner, then it's really hurtful. So if you were talking to people who are saying, I'm just going to go analog, I'm getting off, I'm this is too scary. The Wild West is not my place. What would you tell them? If you think you can manage your life and your business that way, by all means, go ahead. I think it's going to cause you different challenges in life. Yeah. And increasingly, so you're seeing a lot of, let's talk about banking, for instance, because that's the space I know. A lot of organizations are reducing the number of branches they have. Yeah. Because more and more of their customers are doing online banking, doing mobile banking. And so that'll work so long as your bank has a branch in your town and yep. it's staffed at hours that make sense to you. I mean, bankers hours, we laugh at them, but they're, they're frustrated. Yeah, if you need that's to right. It's 430 <laughs> yeah. and nobody's there. It's going to be a balance. But I think we also, as security leaders and, and as financial leaders, need to hear why are people saying that? You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. easy to say, oh, well, this person's scared, blah, blah, blah. But why are people so scared? Well, why are people so scared? Because bad things have happened to them yeah. or, or, or to people they know, and they don't want that to happen to them. And so we're going to have to continue to find ways to educate our consumers, to provide better security to folks, partner closer with law enforcement, and and make it a place that people are comfortable doing business regardless of their technological comfort. Yeah. The interesting thing for me, and I and I shared with you that this was a week that I was hacked and it ended up being a financial thing, but I, I knew enough steps to stop it pretty quickly. The The mental stress of this was really confounding, Nathan. It was like, I kept feeling like every door in my house was open and a hundred guys in hooded masks had come through to try to make me stressed out at every level of my psyche. How do you cope with that yourself? The the idea that there is this force working 24 hours a day, seven days a week to try to get at the information you are trying to keep secret. Well, I, th- I think you first have to understand that it's a violation. No different than if someone is like someone broke into my house and it just changes this level of comfort and safety that you feel. And you don't want to get numb to it. And that's something that I've always been kind of cognizant of. And and I'm not comparing my job to law enforcement by any means, but you know, you know, dealing law enforcement and and you unfortunately deal with some of the worst people on a reoccurring basis, you know, you don't want to get numb to that. And so for me, I just, I think it goes back to the whole culture thing. It's, it's humanizing it. It's no longer thinking of there's 600,000 checking accounts that we're protecting is no, it's, you know, those are 600,000 people on the other end of that screen who are living their life and doing that thing. And so I like to get to know customers. I like to interact with customers. I like to interact Mm -hmm. with that aren't customers and, but they're customers of some financial institution. And, and it's funny, you know, because if you think about like, if you take bankers from two or three banks, they're competitors, they're all fighting over the same business, the same loans. On the cyber side, we're not competitors. We're yeah. all fighting the same bad guys. And what happens at bank X will come down to my bank and vice versa. So we share 
we're good friends. And so, you know, it's building that network of other security professionals. I'll never know the answer to every problem. You got to be willing to ask, hey, have you seen this happen before? Wow. Has this happened in your organization? And so there's a really great information sharing network around cybersecurity professionals and not just at banks, really cybersecurity professionals in general, where we just try and help each other because the more difficult we make it on bad guys at every institution, the less likely they are to come after us. Maybe they can have an epiphany and leave cybercrime and and go do something else. They obviously are very smart, technical, entrepreneurial folks. Yeah. And you shift that energy into adding Something value. positive. Adding yeah. value to totally. I, yeah. I often wonder if they have, you know, big hacker conventions where people like yourself are out there looking for the next best technological whiz to come to work for the good guys. There are a lot of stories of of reformed reformed folks that have, have flipped the side. I mean, look, part of the job is trying to think like a criminal. Well, totally. Nobody- think better like a criminal than an ex-criminal. And so uh, if you, you got to obviously do your homework and understand your organization. Banks are a whole heck of a lot less likely to do that. Um, yeah, I can only imagine. Regulations. Um, <laughs> a lot of them go work for security companies. They make the products that help to identify and stop the type of techniques that worked for them in their path. And so that's, yeah. that's always, you know, that's always a, a good avenue for their skill set. I have had so much fun talking with you, Nathan. I hope you'd agree to be one of our experts for times when we do see stories like this come up in the news because it's a bigger component of people's stress and anxiety than a lot of people are talking about right now. And especially with all of the changing technologies happening so rapidly, we're having a difficult time having our nervous system catch up with all of the technological advances. So thanks again, Nathan, for being with us. Really appreciate your expertise and your willingness to share. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you.